1: The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management.
2: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Brian Crombie Radio Hour on Saga 960 AM. My guest tonight is Jeff Kahoski. He is uh, an adjunct professor at Royal Roads University, and he's a senior fellow at the McDonald laurie Institute. He's written a couple of really interesting articles that I've read uh, lately about uh, Canada's relations with uh, China, with Taiwan, uh, some issues on international trade, and, and also on energy. So we're going to cover uh, uh, numerous different issues today. But I want to start, uh, Jeff, uh, if I could, by asking you a little bit about um, what should we do if China attacks Taiwan? What, what's, what's our role? Uh, what can we do today? And what should we be thinking about doing in the future?
0: Well, uh, China attacking Taiwan is certainly uh, a possibility. Um, It's not one that uh, many analysts think is likely in, say, the next five years. Uh, It wouldn't be in China's interest to do that um, because it would be extremely disruptive to trade in the South China Sea, which would affect China as well as all of us here in Canada. But it's certainly a possibility. Um, Xi Jinping has made a lot of statements, uh, threatening kinds of statements uh, against Taiwan, has not ruled out the use of force, and is actively, you know, exerting coercive tactics on Taiwan. So uh, I was there actually myself in August, shortly after Nancy Pelosi arrived. And uh, so I was a hand witness to the tensions that were created by China's war games and uh Uh, moves around Taiwan uh, after her visit. So it's certainly possible. I think we need to be very concerned uh, in Canada because uh, billions of dollars of uh, goods that go to Canada and come from Canada pass through that region. And the security of Taiwan is important to uh, global peace, uh, not just in the South China Sea, but throughout that part of the world, which is a critical trading partner of Canada's, but also uh, where uh, many of our partners and allies are, such as Japan, South Korea, and uh, Taiwan too. Why? Why is it important to global peace? Well, because first of all, you've got um, a very large proportion of uh, the population in the world living in that region. It's the fastest growing region in the world economically. Uh, it's going to be the most important place uh, for Canada in terms of doing business, trade, investment, even security going forward over in this century. Uh, so for many reasons, uh, the Indo-Pacific, as we call it now, uh, which includes India in this grouping, and India is soon to surpass China in terms of population and uh, even economic growth um is the greatest uh, opportunity but also uh, a lot of uh, concerns over stability uh so canada has a role to play in helping stabilize the region for our own but uh,
2: but why taiwan in specific why Ty- why protecting taiwan defending taiwan why why do you say that's important to world peace
0: well, because Taiwan is a, uh, is a progressive liberal democracy as Canada is. And right now in the world we're faced with, uh, we're being confronted by authoritarian regimes in Russia, in China. Uh, Russia has waged a war in Ukraine. China is threatening Taiwan. China has tensions with other countries and uh, has claims, uh, illegitimate ones, quite frankly, over parts of the South China Sea that other countries there feel are legitimately theirs. So Taiwan is plays a kind of a central role in, that, in the South China Sea. It's a beacon of democracy. It's stable. They have uh, the world's largest source of advanced semiconductors, um, and they are a close partner of uh, the West, including Canada, the US, and other countries. So it's in our interest to preserve that <clears throat> democracy and uh, the rule of law and the things that we stand for, our values are reflected in our support for Taiwan.
2: Tell us a little bit about Taiwan, if you could, because I'm not sure if everyone is familiar. You said you visited uh, there recently. I have uh, not visited Taiwan uh, recently, but I have visited there. And uh, I was, you know, impressed by the population, the size, the vibrancy of of Taipei. I uh, went on a high-speed rail uh, from uh, Taipei down to Sun Moon Lake. It's a very populous, prosperous, advanced democracy, is it not?
0: Yes, it is. Uh, It's very much so. And I think it's even getting stronger in that respect. Uh, I don't know when you were there, but having just come back from there this past summer, I can tell you that uh, the people there are determined to preserve what they built Um, it as you say it's a a strong liberal democracy we they share a lot of values with Canadians they're trying to uh, build um, you know a a strong country it's not a country per se uh, but it is a nation and they see themselves as distinct from mainland Chinese and uh, so really uh, because Taiwan has been Evolving sort of separately from the mainland since World War II, it's now become a very unique uh, place itself, and people want to preserve it naturally, and so um, they're very keen on doing it, they've built a lot of uh, institutions, uh, human rights, they have a human rights commissioner, they have demonstrations are allowed, free speech is allowed. Um, and they have, uh, elections where people are elected democratically without corruption. So, I mean, these are kinds of things that I think we want to help uh, support, uh, as Canadians. Um, so,
2: but you say it's not a country, China, um, thinks it's part of China, uh, would like it to be part of China. So how do you defend something that is not really a country?
0: Well, Canada has what we call a one uh, China policy, which is that we took note when uh, China uh, declared that Taiwan was an integral part of mainland China, Canada took note of that, but it did not acknowledge that Taiwan was a part of China. Nonetheless, um, we recognize that there is one government uh, that governs China. And so we but don't. But there isn't. On. There's two governments, right? Taiwan does have. Taiwan has its own government. Taiwan has its own government, yes. And so, from their perspective, they are, you know, already de facto independent. But for the purposes of international relations, uh, Canada recognized that uh, mainland China in Beijing. Uh, represents greater China, which includes uh, Taiwan, even though we don't necessarily acknowledge that Taiwan is an integral part of China. So it's a kind of a nuanced way of thinking about it. Nonetheless, we do have, so we don't have, Canada doesn't and many other countries don't have a formal embassy in Taiwan. What we have is a trade office, we call it, but it acts very similar to an embassy. And uh, our relations with Taiwan are focused mainly on uh, trade, investment, uh, and uh, other things, and not much on the political side. Um, and we, our kind of view, I guess, is to see how uh, the relationship evolves, but we continue to support uh, Taiwan's democratic um, values.
2: We're going to take a break for some messages and come back more with uh, Dr. Jeff Karharski. Is that correct, Karharsky? That's
3: right.
2: Um, uh, in just uh, two minutes, and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, Canada's new uh, Indo-Pacific strategy and what he thinks about that, and, uh, and then maybe a little bit about uh, energy. Back in two. Stay with us, everybody.
1: Stream us live at saga960am.ca.
2: Welcome back, everyone, to the Brian Crombie Radio Hour on Saga Nine Sixty. The topic for tonight's discussion is uh, is Taiwan, uh, uh, Asia, China, uh, Indo Pacific uh, policy that uh, Canada has recently uh, changed, and maybe even uh, we'll talk a little bit about uh, energy. Our guest is uh, is Doctor Professor Jeff Karoski. Uh, this man has got you know one unbelievably impressive uh, resume. Uh, If I could uh, just tell you, he's uh, an adjunct professor at Royal uh, Royal Roads University in Victoria, British Columbia. He's a senior fellow at the macdonald Lurie Institute. He's been a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Uh, uh, He's worked uh, for numerous years uh, in the Department of Energy and Government uh, in Alberta as assistant deputy minister, executive lead, etc. And then, you know, kind of interesting, we're going to have to talk about this later. You've got a doctor of energy science from Kyoto University. That must have been kind of interesting. Um, uh, Information Management Technology at Massachusetts uh, Institute of Technology Executive Management Program at Harvard Business School, an MBA from Alberta School of Business and a BCom Business Administration and Commerce at the University of Alberta. What
0: do you teach, sir? Uh, I'm teaching international business courses right now.
2: Uh, Focused on Asia or, or everywhere?
0: Uh, Well, international business covers the whole globe. So we talk about uh, trade and commerce around the world. Uh, But I do also teach courses in doing business in the Indo-Pacific region. And as part of that, I take uh, my students to Asia for a practicum. Where'd you go? This year, we're going to Japan and Vietnam. Uh, two interesting places, uh, and uh, we've been there before. Uh, to Japan, we've been several times, but this time we're for the first time going to Vietnam.
2: I uh, did a crazy thing uh, in the middle of my career. At one point in time, I went back to try to do a part-time doctorate in business, and uh, did a couple of weeks at Fudon University in Shanghai, uh, doing uh, you know business, international business uh, courses, and uh, doing business in China, doing business in Asia, etc. What an incredibly interesting experience, and what an incredible part of the world! Uh, if we get time, we should talk a little bit about Vietnam and what's happening there. But I wanted to turn, if I could, sir, to um, this new policy uh, that uh, Canada's come out with—the uh, uh, Indo-Pacific policy—and and and you also talked about, uh, you know, we the authoritarian uh, countries, uh, Russia, China, etc., and uh, and our both our Deputy Prime Minister. And our Minister of Foreign Affairs have sort of come out with different sort of points of view about how we deal with uh, authoritarian um, uh, governments worldwide, almost uh, less idealistic, more realistic kind of point of view. Tell me what you think about this change of attitude the Canadian government has to authoritarian uh, countries, governments, and also to to an Indo-Pacific strategy.
3: <sighs> Yeah, yeah, you're right absolutely Brian that the, the
0: government has sort of evolved in its thinking of, about this. You know, for many many years Canada was very focused on a kind of uh, commercial focusing on commercial relationships uh, in our international relations, particularly in the Indo-Pacific. And so things like our values and upholding the rule of law, democracy, and so on were didn't play as strong a role. But I think um, with the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, that really created a watershed moment and a kind of wake up call for Canadian government. And add to that, I think that Canada is experiencing a lot of pressure, especially from the United States, but also from our European allies to step up its game in terms of uh, defense, support for Ukraine, um, and more broadly, uh, you know, taking on a more, a robust role in its engagement with the rest of the world, particularly when we're talking about, you know, authoritarian regimes like Russia, but also China and others. So, uh, Deputy Minister Krista, or Deputy Prime Minister Krista Freeland, uh, made that uh, speech in Washington, which was um, well received. Um, she has spoken about. Uh, She's spoken quite openly about her views of upholding the international rules-based order uh, and coming from a position of strength, even in Canada, in the past when she talked about Canada's uh, defence strategy. Um, But she did it again in Washington. And it's interesting that her stance is much more, uh, you know, clearer, stronger, and more robust than almost anything we've heard from the prime minister, although he himself is now talking more like this.
2: Do you think those are her personal views or are they the views of the Canadian government?
0: I think they're her personal views, uh, absolutely. Uh, To what extent are they the views of the Canadian government is uh, in some question. I mean, a lot of people think there are wide differences of opinion about this new stance around the cabinet table. Um, but certainly as Deputy Prime Minister, Krista uh, Freeland has a lot of influence, and I don't think she would have said things like that without some support from the Prime Minister and others. So uh, I'm hopeful that this is actually uh, going to be represent uh, a new way of Canada, uh, you know, showing up in the world.
2: Okay, what about uh, this new Indo-Pacific strategy that some people think was a long time coming?
0: Yeah, this strategy has been talked about now for, I think, two and a half, three years. And uh, we've been expecting it, uh, many of us uh, expecting it for some time. And there was a fair bit of criticism of the government that they weren't coming out with it. But I think they, you know, they simply couldn't delay it anymore. And another reason perhaps that it was delayed was, well, one reason I think was to get past the Meng Wanzhou issue and the two Michaels, uh, which is now behind us. And then trying to be aligned with the US strategy vis-a-vis the Indo-Pacific, particularly vis-a-vis China. And I think the Canadian government has now shown that it is committed to being aligned with US policy. That doesn't mean that we will have the same policies, but it does mean that we will be working with the US together on, you know, critical elements of it. And I think Uh, There were some close consultations between Ottawa and Washington uh, before we came up with this strategy. So I I do think that this is a a positive move and better late than never.
2: How is it different than our past strategy?
0: Well, in the past, you know, we really didn't have an explicit strategy that was written down. Uh, At least we haven't seen anything like this in several decades, quite frankly. So it's probably the most detailed uh, and cohesive strategy vis-a-vis that region that I've seen uh, in my career, although there have been other white papers and other suggestions for strategies. Uh, so this, this, this is a step forward. Um, we haven't had a strategy, I guess, because you know historically canada has looked at it's, itself more as an atlantic nation looking across the atlantic ocean to our nato allies to europe you know and so we've had that sort of eastward if you if you will look uh in our foreign policy but i think this is now changing with the importance of the indo pacific uh rising with the, the tensions there with uh, certainly with china's a growing influence in the region. So it's it, it's kind of a coming-to-reality moment for Canada and uh, bringing out this strategy.
2: So, you know, from a business, you teach international business, from a business person standpoint, how does this change anything that we would do with China, Japan, India, Vietnam, et cetera, or does it?
0: Well, I think the value in having a strategy like this is setting a vision and a direction uh, and giving kind of sending a signal to Canadian business in particular that there are huge opportunities in the region that Canada can take advantage of um, utilizing the trade agreements that we have in place. And we do have a number of them. The one, the most prominent one, of course, is the uh, CPTPP or Comprehensive Progressive uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership, which Ties together Canada with 10 other countries in that region and uh, opens up their markets to Canadian goods and services. And so, you know, the Canadian government through this strategy is planning to add some resources on the ground in some of these countries and some other programs to help and assist Canadian firms access these markets uh, for our products and services, but also promote investment. From the region into Canada, so um, you know, I think you know this. These kinds of things are important for Canada. They help grow our GDP. Uh, they help create jobs. Uh, they help uh, you know make our relationships with countries in the region closer, and thereby we all benefit um, as a result.
2: Uh, the United States, Australia, England seem to have a. Uh an association that wasn't welcoming to Canada for a while for some reason. Can you tell us a little bit about that at all?
0: Yeah, I think you're referring to AUKUS. Uh, This is uh, a new kind of security grouping that was formed uh, in Asia uh, that is really uh, formed by Australia and the United States principally. Uh, The main objective uh, originally was to... Uh, help the Australians get hold of nuclear-powered submarines. So they will be building nuclear-powered submarines based on uh, US design and with US technical support, which is the first time the United States has done this. And they're doing it because of the perceived threats from China in the region. Um, but that's not the only thing. I know our prime minister has said that Canada is not really an interest in joining AUKUS because it is a sub- mainly a submarine deal. But actually that's not quite true. And so there are other things like artificial intelligence and other uh, areas of uh, technology that Canada has some expertise in and could benefit from being a part of. Um, And so I think there may be some discussions now about Canada potentially joining, um, but these are sort of going on quietly and uh, I haven't seen anything in the news yet.
2: Australia seems to have had a far tougher stance uh, vis-a-vis China than Canada has, and yet they're a lot closer and and have had a lot more trade, one would think, with China. Uh, Has the Australian strategy been a better strategy? Has it worked better than the Canadian strategy?
0: Well, part of this is due to geography, right? I mean, just as Canada is a neighbour of the United States and the US has the largest economy in the world, and therefore our biggest trading partner is the United States, Uh, Australia is relatively close to China, and its biggest trading partner is China. And so they naturally need to look at China, uh, despite the fact that China is, you know, a communist country. They need to maintain some semblance of a relationship with China because it's in their economic interest uh, in particular. On the security side, of course, they're much closer to the United States and the West. So it's there is a natural tension there, but yeah, that's basically geography explains why, you know, Australia is much more uh, attentive to and um, oriented to uh, countries in East Asia because they depend on those countries for their exports uh, for as a source of investment and so, uh, you know, for many years, they've had to work closely in that region out of necessity. And so they have, a, I think, a much deeper appreciation for and understanding of the region than Canada does.
2: There's been some controversy recently that uh, there's been a CSIS report that China played a role in influencing some of the campaigns in the last uh, federal election. Uh, do you believe those? Uh, do you think it happened? And, and what should we do about it if it did?
0: Well, I've been I've been following Joanna Chu's work, who's a uh, really good re- investigative reporter out of Vancouver um, for several years, and she wrote a book about this um, a year or so ago. And even before that, she was talking about it. She and others. Uh, so this is not something new, um, and it's fairly widely known that. Uh, the Chinese government, through their proxies in Canada, have been trying to influence uh, Canadian policy uh, vis-a-vis China. Um, the revelation that there actually is money involved going to campaigns is something uh, that I I haven't seen before. Uh, it's very it's worrying. Um, quite frankly, uh, it's something we need to urgently address. Um, and China does this not only in Canada, but they've been actively doing this for many years in Australia, and it caused a huge um, political firestorm there uh, in the past few years. And so as a result, the Australians came up with uh, a lot of new laws and policies to stop this kind of behavior and that got China quite angry, actually. So. China-Australia relations went into the dumpster for uh, a couple of years at least. Now, things are recovering a little bit now. Um, But yes, China does do these influence operations. They do them in various countries around the world and they see it, I guess, in their interest to try to have friendly policies towards China. Do
2: you think it could have actually
0: changed the outcome of the federal election?
3: Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.
2: A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh?
3: Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com No purchase necessary. Full worth by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: Well, from what I've read, it would appear that it wouldn't wouldn't have really changed the outcome of the election but the the mere fact that they are doing this uh now and if we don't do anything about stopping it could they could change uh influence an in election in the future and that's extremely worrisome
2: i gotta ask you uh, since you're so knowledgeable about china and things uh is there a genocide going on in china today
0: I think that what's going on in Xinjiang, where the Uyghur uh, minority uh, is, uh, is, by some definitions, a genocide. Yes, I do. Um, I mean, this is uh, this is the Chinese government is very afraid of minority groups that are different than the Han Chinese. Majority and um, the Xi Jinping himself is very averse to any kind of instability, um, and he defines that quite broadly. So, you know, even COVID um, demonstrations are, would be extremely uh, worrying to the Chinese government. But what they're doing in Xinjiang is over the top and uh, is certainly a human rights violation. Uh, so, yes, I think this is genocidal, and uh, I think the world needs to continue to call them out on this.
2: Should Canada be doing something different?
0: Well, I think Canada has uh, called out China, although the, 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 certainly the legislature has been, uh, the parliament has, I should say, but not the government itself in terms of calling it a genocide, perhaps for political reasons. Um but what Canada could do is enforce its uh, import laws more strictly, um, and so we have laws that we should prevent, you know, products made from forced labor, uh, for example, into the country. But in fact, these these products continue to flow into Canada, uh, and they're not being stopped at the border. And so we need to enforce the laws we already have in place.
2: We're chatting tonight with uh, Professor uh, Jeff Um Adjunct Professor at Royal Roads University, Royal Roads University, and a Senior Fellow at the Macdonald Institute about uh, about Canada Chinese uh, relations, uh, Taiwan, Vietnam, uh, uh, Indo Pacific strategy, etc. We're going to take a break for some messages and come back uh, in two minutes. And I'm going to ask uh, uh, Dr. Krasny about uh, about energy because that's another one of his uh, major concerns and topics. Stay with us, everyone. Back in two.
1: No radio? No problem. Stream us live on saga960am.ca.
2: Welcome back, everyone, to the Brian Crombie Radio Hour on Saga 960. My guest tonight is uh, Dr. Jeff Kaharski, who is an adjunct professor at Royal Roads University. Uh, he's also a senior fellow at MacDonald-Laurie Institute, um he's uh, an expert in uh, in Asia uh, China uh, Indo-Pacific issues and we've been chatting a little bit about that but he's also got a big expertise in energy um especially in the energy area uh, energy security energy transitions and the geopolitics of energy uh, I understand that you uh worked for numerous years in the Department of Energy in Alberta where you were the assistant deputy minister um tell me what do you think about Our energy strategy today, Uh, you know, we've got a provincial government in Alberta that it would appear for lots of reasons, but energy being one of them, maybe even wants to separate from uh, the rest of Canada, uh, has a sovereignty uh, act that they've recently passed. We've got uh, some people saying that, uh, um, you know, liquefied natural gas is, is, is the solution to a lot of geopolitical issues, and we should be um, piping it across Canada and shipping it across the Atlantic Ocean to, to supply Germany and other people saying there's no business case for that. So you know, tell me what what you think about energy today.
0: Well, energy is absolutely essential to a modern economy, uh, Brian. We cannot have an economy. We can't even have our jobs or live in a warm house or turn on the lights without a steady supply of energy. So it's absolutely critical. We are in a transition. We're moving toward a clean energy, hopefully a net zero uh, economy by 2050. It is a big stretch goal. Uh, We may not make it exactly a net zero, but that's the goal. And I support that. Um, We have to deal with climate change and uh, we need to do all we can to make this transition uh, to clean energy happen. But having said that, we can't ignore the fact that you know, for 150 years, we've had a fossil fuel based energy system and there are literally trillions of dollars of infrastructure invested in pipelines, electricity grids um, and other systems to support that now. All the major uh, analysts of energy uh, around the world, um, including and especially the International Energy Agency, acknowledge that we're going to continue to need oil and gas in particular, even out to 2050 and probably beyond. So nobody is saying that this is going to go to zero, uh, despite what you might hear from some activists. The objective is to sort of trend down the use of fossil fuels and at the same time, build out our uh, infrastructure for uh, renewables and clean energy. When I talk about clean energy, I'm talking about emissions free energy. So that could include fossil fuels with carbon capture technology, as well as nuclear, which also doesn't emit carbon and renewables like wind and solar. So Canada needs a rational uh, approach to energy. We don't actually have an energy strategy in Canada. Uh, Surprisingly enough, there's been a lot of talk over the years about needing one, but we don't have one. Um, But we do have recently this critical mineral strategy that was released and critical minerals are a part of our clean energy transition. So I include that in energy. But it, uh, I think you, you, you raise an important point about uh, demand for energy. We are a major producer of energy in the world, and we ship most of it south to the United States. But we have the capability now, and especially in the next couple of years, to export it offshore. And I'm talking about particularly the West Coast where the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion is nearing completion. It's only about a year away from being able to export oil. And the LNG Canada project, which is a huge world scale uh, LNG project in Kitimat, that's going to be exporting LNG mainly to the Indo-Pacific region. We don't currently have any export capacity on the East Coast. We could have, we could have had But the Canadian government, um, through because of regulatory permitting uh, delays and uh, environmental reviews and many other reasons, we just haven't been able to get a plant uh, permitted there. There is some talk of fast-tracking one. Because after the war started in Ukraine, and the Russians cut off Europe from natural gas supplies. Those people are in dire need of uh, natural gas, and we, as a supplier of natural gas, could be exporting LNG to Europe, helping them with their energy security. But we can't do that right now because we haven't—we've been slow on the mark in getting an export terminal built on the east coast. Uh, I know that our prime minister said that there's no business case for an LNG plant on the east coast. That's flat wrong. There is, and I think. Uh, the the natural resources minister would admit as much now uh, if he was being honest. There's certainly going to be the demand in Europe for some years to come. And so uh, these terminals will be needed over a number of years. They ultimately may be able to be converted to hydrogen, which is something else that Canada wants to export going forward. So there are a lot of reasons why we really should have an export uh, facility on the East
2: Coast. Um, I understand that we're selling uh, natural gas to the United States at like uh, 10 or 20% of world prices. And then they're liquefying either that gas or their own gas and uh, and shipping it at 100%. So at four or five times what we uh, sell it to them uh, for. Uh, and yeah, I think you're right that it'll take a couple of years to uh, certainly build pipelines and, uh, and an LLG facility. But if you assume that, uh, you know, Europe is going to be dependent on either uh, Russian gas or some substitute, isn't this something that we should fast track and like fast track it yesterday?
0: Absolutely. This should be an, you know, a national, an urgent issue to support our allies and partners in Europe, uh, with which we, you know, uh, rhetorically or, you know, are our uh, government is always saying how much we need, we support Europe, and we're allies and NATO, and uh, you know, upholders of the rules-based uh, system in the world. But when it comes down to actually doing something to support them in the near and the medium term, it seems to be very difficult. We need to make this a priority. We need to fast-track the permitting and the r- regulations. I'm not saying that we should skip important environmental reviews and those kinds of things but there are lots of things that could be done to make this happen sooner rather than later and help out our european allies and we should be doing that
2: one would think with a you know a war that looks damn like world war ii uh, going on in uh, europe today um with uh, inflation with uh with everything else that's going on, one would think that now's the time that it could actually get approved. Why hasn't it uh, been fast-tracked? Why hasn't uh, we've got the political capital, the political wherewithal to actually make this change and and fast-track the regulatory approvals?
0: Uh, I have to think, Brian, it's... Unfortunately, I think a lot of the reasons are political. Um, Our current government, well, you know, of course... We all agree that climate change is real and we need to address it. There seems to be a feeling uh, in, at least in this government that uh, that means that we need to um, get off oil and gas immediately and immediately uh, ramp up uh, renewables and other clean energy sources. And that goes uh, to, that also goes for our policy uh, regarding, uh, you know exports. Uh, There's not a lot of support for um, oil and gas in this government now because they believe that we need to transition away from it. And they're right. And we are transitioning. But the transition is going to take several decades. And in the meantime, as we see in Europe, we are very uh, subject to uh, suppliers like Russia But there are others including in the Middle East that will use energy as a weapon and if we're going to still be reliant on some degree of oil and gas, even in 2050, we don't want to be reliant on places in the Middle East and on Russia, we want to make sure that uh, countries like Canada that can supply these products can continue to do so because we're a safe and reliable supplier so we should establish ourselves, we should do everything we can to make sure we capture the emissions, but we should continue to supply the world through this transition because they're gonna need these products to ensure their energy security. So there just just seems to be a reluctance to admit this and put all the uh, emphasis in policy and and, uh, speeches on uh, clean energy, perhaps for political reasons, but the actual reality on the ground is we're gonna continue to need oil and gas for some time to come.
2: You also mentioned nuclear. Uh, our Minister of the Environment understand at one point in time was very anti-nuclear. Um, I live in Ontario. Uh, you know, I think most people think that uh, we've got cleaner air today and we've been able to wean ourselves off of coal because of the significant contribution that nuclear plays in our, uh, in our uh, uh, electricity system here. What's the future that you think uh, nuclear should play in our energy system in Canada?
0: I'm one of those people that feel that without nuclear power, we will not reach net zero by 2050. Absolutely. So, nuclear is absolutely essential um, because nuclear, beyond being just carbon free, is a source of stable baseload power. And what I mean by that is, when you turn on a nuclear plant, you can supply power steadily 24 hours a day. And so it, it doesn't depend on the sun shining or the wind blowing like uh, windmills and solar panels do. And we need nuclear and we need other forms of stable base load power like hydro to back up expansion of nuclear, or sorry, back up the expansion of renewables uh, in our country. So that we can continue to turn on the lights and heat our homes even at night, and when the wind's not blowing. So we need that base load power. Uh, we need it because we need we want if we want to reach net zero by 2050. Uh, that's one of the way, sources we need. In fact, what we need in Canada is an all of the above strategy where we use all energy sources, ensuring that we try to capture those emissions as much as possible so that we can have a stable and affordable energy system. And we can't forget about affordability because we can't do this at any cost. We have to make sure it's affordable for people as well.
2: You were the executive lead head of the Energy Future Division at the Alberta Alberta Department of Energy at one point in time. Uh, You mentioned hydrogen, uh, you mentioned carbon capture. Are these new technologies actually potentially Available and 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 could they be part of our energy future?
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, carbon capture uh, technology has been around now for uh, you know twenty years probably, but we really haven't put it in place yet for various economic and other reasons. But now, you know, there is a large project uh, going uh, to be constructed in Alberta to capture and uh, sequester carbon. I think that this is an area with this new tax credit, the Canadian government has supported uh, companies to invest in carbon capture and I'm anxiously waiting to see that uh, companies take them up on this. So that's a very important technology we need to really uh, put a focus on if we're gonna continue to use oil and gas for some time to come. Um, The other one you mentioned, sorry, uh, what was the other? Hydrogen. Hydrogen, yes. Hydrogen is, you know, a liquid fuel, uh, ultimately can be used to store energy. And so we can produce hydrogen in Canada from a number of sources, it can be produced from natural gas, or we can produce hydrogen from seawater uh, using uh, a a certain process. Uh, We can produce it from, um, you know, wind and uh, solar power as well. And so it's a source of The sources for hydrogen uh, production can be clean energy and hydrogen itself has no emissions. So hydrogen is, a lot of countries are looking to hydrogen to fill in some gaps. It's certainly not going to replace oil or gas, but in certain applications like for for fleet vehicles or for storing energy, um, it certainly has uh, a lot of merits. So Canada is in a good position actually because we have a lot of clean energy sources like hydro in particular, uh, where we can produce hydrogen and potentially export either the hydrogen or ammonia, which carries hydrogen to other countries. And uh, that can be another source of uh, Canadian exports.
2: I happen to think that uh, hydrogen, ammonia really are a potential solution because as you mentioned, they don't carry carbon in them. They're, they're uh, either liquids or gases that uh, don't uh, contain any uh, carbon molecules. And, uh, and so if we could actually convert some of our hydrocarbons to uh, ammonia or hydrogen and then ship that, uh, we would uh, get rid of all of the issues of, uh, of, of, of carbon pollution and then uh, carbon uh, emissions uh, later on in the, in the whole uh, uh, supply chain process. And so I think it really could be a solution. And I wish we'd spend more time and energy uh, doing research on that. Uh, We're going to take a break uh, for some uh, final messages and come back with some concluding comments uh, from uh, from our guest, uh, Dr. Jeff Karashi, in uh, just uh, two minutes. Stay with us.
1: Stream us live at saga960am.ca.
2: Welcome back, everyone, to the Brian Crumby Radio Hour on night 60. My guest tonight has been Dr. Jeff Krahowski, who is uh, um, really uh, an expert both in uh, Indo-Pacific issues as well as energy issues. He's shown that, uh, uh, you know, very uh, um, sufficiently, adequately, uh, substantially in our conversation uh, today. And so thank you for that. He's also a professor of international business uh, and so uh, undoubtedly could give us all suggestions on how we can make some money. Uh, in uh, in this world uh, of the future. Um, Professor, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, you know Canada's place in the world. As you think about uh, some of our listeners today, whether they're involved in politics or business uh, or just interested in what's going on, uh, we've talked about this new policy uh, that Christian Friedland talked about to, in regards to authoritarian governments, the new policy that uh, the Minister of Foreign Affairs has talked about in regards to our Indo-Pacific strategy, um, we're certainly, uh, you know, I think thinking a lot more about our role in NATO, uh, maybe even our role in the Arctic. Um, concerns about what's going on in uh, in in Ukraine and and whether we should be investing more in in military and defense. We're almost at the new year. We're thinking about twenty twenty three. Tell me a little bit about you know the future of Canada in the world, if you could.
0: It's a big question Brian, but it's an important one. Um, I think that Canada uh, is faced with and not just Canada, but uh, many countries that are uh, friends with Canada, with a world that has really become uh, unpredictable, uh, volatile, uh, in many ways, uh, much more full of tension. We have a war in Ukraine, as you mentioned. We have uh, a growing power in China, which they are hoping to use to uh, bring China into a stronger role in the rest of the world. There are threats in the in the Indo Pacific. We've got deglobalization trends. You know, the world is sort of moving into blocks, trading blocks, and uh, friendshoring and supply chain realignments. Um, and we've got economic uh, instability as well, along with inflation and so on. So we, the world is confronted with a lot of uh, challenges, and Canada has to deal with these as well. And so it's really important that we have a map. We have a map uh, for how to navigate these uh, you know, treacherous waters going forward. And I think I give uh, credit to the government for coming out finally with an Indo-Pacific strategy, which will help us navigate in that region going forward. Uh, I give them credit for coming out with a critical mineral strategy, which is putting money behind their uh, policies to support this sector, although I think it's probably not enough. Um, and I think we uh, as a nation, our particular our private sector uh, needs to step up now and start to engage more deeply in the world, recognizing these uh, Uh, forces that are uh, facing us, but not shrinking from them, but actually uh, engaging out in the world and making new partnerships and alliances and uh, uh, using the trade relations, the free trade agreements that Canada has established in the Indo-Pacific, in Europe and elsewhere, and working with partners like the United States, uh, Japan and others uh, to preserve our democratic values and uh, the international rules-based order. These are going to be things we're going to hear about more going forward. We're going to be challenged from uh, various authoritarian regimes, as we're seeing in Russia and China, but we need to be strong and uh, move forward. Uh, hopefully, we're going to have a peaceful transition uh, to a better world in this century, um, but it may be fraught with, with bumps along the way, so we have to be ready.
2: Are you optimistic,
0: sir, or pessimistic? I'm hopeful. Uh, I really, I think that at the end of the day, um, human beings, you know, want to get along uh, and they have different perspectives on things. We need to, this is where diplomacy is really important. Um, but at the same time, we have to stand up for our values and what we believe is absolutely essential and important, not only for us, but for our children and the future of our country. So we need to be strong, but we need to be hopeful that we can do this in a peaceful way uh, as well. So I, I am hopeful.
2: Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Jeff Kraharski of Royal Roads uh, University and the macdonald Institute for joining us and uh, talking to us about uh, the indo uh, Pacific uh, relationship, about China, about Taiwan, about energy, and about your hopefulness uh, for the future of Canada and the world.
0: Really appreciate it. You're most welcome. Thanks, Brian.
2: That's our show for tonight. Thanks for joining us, everyone. I remind you, I'm on every Monday through Friday at 6 o'clock on 960 AM. You can stream me online, even from Victoria, British Columbia, at Saga 960 amca Good night, everybody.
1: No radio? No problem. Stream us live on saga960am.ca.